Center Church. Very happy to be with you again uh, for the third installment, the final installment in this three-part series on the contemptible friend and the corrupt judge. We are in um, a series here at Center covering the parables of Jesus, and um, I anticipate that the series will take us through the end of the calendar year. So, um, our final pass over the contemptible friend and the corrupt judge for this series is happening today. I try to weekly mention the resources that inform um, these conversations, uh, these teachings, and um, today, uh, particularly useful um, for me, and I've referenced it um, almost every week, are Brad Young's Parables, Jewish Tradition, and Christian Interpretation, as well as um, the very fascinating, um, because he is always very fascinating, Robert Farrar Capon's book, The Parables of the Kingdom, which for some reason when you click on on Amazon, it will also recommend to you Game of Thrones. I don't, I don't see the connection, but Maybe I've not, not read all of the book and can't remember, but we have Young's book and we have Capon's book as kind of um, the, the, as, as the resources that inform the talk today. So, uh, just to review our previous two weeks, uh, I've identified at least three uh, useful layers of meaning as we think through these two partner parables. And each week we've given particular emphasis to the parable of the corrupt judge or the vengeful widow and the co-opted judge, as Levine frames it. So the first week we took a look at the sociological and anthropological value of this parable. And, um, and I hope that was useful to you, but I think even deeper than that, is this parable and the ways it serves as a commentary on authentic faith and prayer. And then, for me, the centerpiece of this parable, which is what we'll be looking at today, and it's this parable's service as a commentary on what God is like. So, uh, the first layer of meaning, again, by way of summary, which is the sociological and anthropological layer. We, we talked about prioritizing the individual over their affiliations. We talked about understanding the resistance against systemic oppression and how this requires a commitment to justice over vengeance. In the second layer of meaning, we reviewed authentic faith and prayer, and we touched on four insights concerning authentic faith and prayer. And they are as follows. One, prayer is inevitable and universal, but, not, but must not be viewed with homogeneity, or must not be viewed homogeneously. Two, faith and prayer must be understood as two parts of the same whole. Three, don't reject persistence in prayer because you have adopted its caricature as the authentic article. And four, from last week, in attempting to think correctly about the mind of God, we must not neglect our human experience of the divine. So there's a somewhat detailed 
review of the last two weeks of teaching on the contemptible friend and the corrupt judge. Well, the third layer of meaning is what we will be looking at today. Again, a commentary on what God is like. And for me, this is, again, the centerpiece of this parable. So if the first two layers of meaning have been valuable for you or thought-provoking or useful, that's wonderful. But without um, receiving this this teaching on the parable, I think the rest, I don't, I don't see how it holds together. So for those of you who are taking notes, I think there are four points that we're going to touch on, but uh, really there's an overarching um, principle, this essential principle that I want to open with before we read Luke chapter 11 and chapter 18 again. So the essential principle that really ties everything together within this, this analysis uh, comes from Young's work. Uh, it may not be directly quoted, but the idea is, is from Young. Faith in God is the basis of prayer. And true faith is ultimately concerned with what God is like. Um, once more, this essential principle... Faith in God is the basis of prayer, and true faith is ultimately concerned with what God is like. So some of you have already picked up on um, some of the, the through lines concerning this essential principle, which uh, for me has been um, a, a subject of interest for the last six months or so as I've been studying and thinking through the meaning of faith, what it is, uh, how it's experienced. And you see in this essential principle um, the synthesis of some of the themes that I've touched on prior. Uh, one is, is Tillich's claim that faith is um, essentially our ultimate concern. Um, it is the the object of our ultimate concern, as well as really, I think, insight that comes from many places. But it, but at least Young, when he when he underscores the idea that faith and prayer are necessarily linked, they are not synonymous, but two sides of the same coin. And you see both of those. Both of those values at work, both of those insights featuring in, the, in that essential principle. So with that in mind, again, faith in God is the basis of prayer. And true faith, meaning that apparently there's some version of faith that is not true faith, is ultimately concerned with what God is like. With that in mind, let's take another look at Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 8. And then Luke 18, 1 through 8. So here's Luke 11, beginning at verse 5. And he said to them, Among you, what man would have a friend and would come to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, since a friend of mine has just visited me from the road and I have nothing I might set before him. 
and the one inside would say in response, Do not present me with difficulties. The door has already been closed, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything, I tell you. Even if you will not rise and give it to him, because he is a friend, still on account of his persistence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone asking receives, and the one seeking finds, and to the one knocking it will be opened. And what father among you, if his son will ask for a fish, will hand him a snake instead of a fish? Or again, if he will ask for an egg, will instead hand him a scorpion? If therefore you, being wicked, know to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father from heaven give a Holy Spirit to those asking him? And here is the partner parable to uh, the contemptible friend. We see the parable of the corrupt judge in chapter 18. And he told them a parable saying, rather, and he told them a parable on the necessity of their always praying and not becoming remiss, saying, In a certain city there was a certain judge who did not fear God and who had no concern for humankind. And there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Grant me justice over against my adversary. Uh, We'll pause to note um, what we dealt with, I think, in week one. Grant me vengeance, or avenge me against my adversary. And for some time he would not, but thereafter he said within himself, Though indeed I do not fear God, nor do I have any concern for humankind, I shall grant her justice simply because she bothers me, for fear that at the last she will entirely exhaust me with her visits." And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God then surely bring about justice for his chosen ones, crying to him day and night, and not delay over them for long? I tell you, he will swiftly bring them justice. Yet when the Son of Man comes, will he then find faith on the earth? So it may be the case that all we've discussed in the last two weeks concerning the ways in which we might misapprehend the character and personality of the widow, concerning the nature of prayer and seeing it as a, as a feature of what it is to be human, its, its sociological value, and the ways in which persistence in prayer, however correctly oriented or however they... However, persistence in prayer might be misplaced. All of these things can be true. It can be, it can be true that the widow's motives are, um, are impure. It can be true that her methodology is confused or, or uh, misled. It can be, additionally, it can be true that the human experience of the divine, the human experience of prayer puts us in a position, if we are to understand prayer as something that is at once authentic, but also a discipline, puts us in the position of, at times, not only being inarticulate in prayer, but at times, fumbling in the dark, attempting to engage in this difficult human exercise that is still a true and powerful connection to the divine. All of those things, things that we've you know, touched on in various depths over the last two weeks, all of those things may be true. But moreover, 
more than any of these things is this is this interest I think in the parable in the both of these parables is the is the interest that these parables pay to what God is like to the nature of God himself so our first observation on these two parables uh, is this. The focal point of your faith must be what God is like. The focal point of your faith must be what God is like. So the point of, of both of these parables is to provide a contrast. And we know this. We've dealt with this over the last two weeks. They both use exaggerated role reversal. They both make God into an angry and annoyed friend, um, into an uninterested and apathetic, if not, if not hostile judge. These two parables reveal to the reader that, that God is in fact not like the untrustworthy friend, that God is in fact not like the corrupt judge. And I think that's where um, we see the provocation of the parable. You have to ask, you know, first, what would the hearers of this parable have expected? Um, what exactly, th- those who were following um, the teachings of Jesus um, and, and had maybe even heard some of his teachings prior, what what might they have expected from a parable of this kind? And and the reality, I mean, of course, we can't know exactly what the hearers would have expected, but we do know that if if scholarship holds on this, that it's likely um, some kind of moralizing, uh, prescriptive story would have been would have been the um, the order of the day. They would have expected Jesus to offer a prescriptive account telling us that God is a trustworthy friend, a prescriptive account. This is how you approach a trustworthy friend. They would have expected a prescriptive account where they are presented with a just judge who wants to honor God and a widow who needs the judge's um, uh, positive ruling. That's what would have been expected. Instead, the, I think, provocative element of the story is the provocative nature of this parable is that Jesus does not give something that is prescriptive, at least not directly so. Rather, he gives something that is descriptive. Instead of telling us how we should see God, Jesus first tells us how we do see God. We expect a parable on how we should pray, and Jesus gives us instead a story of how we actually view God. This parable provides a contrast to the common wisdom of the time, which detailed the appropriate responses of friends and judges. We often see God, and this is, again, the provocation of the parable, we often see God, whatever we say, we see him as an unjust judge who is ready to leave the weakest and the neediest of us behind. Whatever, we, whatever lip service we give, if, if, if the parable is meant to provoke in this way, Jesus seems to indicate that 
actually, whatever we say about how we think about God, actually we think about God as one who is preoccupied, often elsewhere, and when we don't stop banging on the door, he responds annoyed. Whatever we say about how we think and feel about God, actually, when you get down to it, quite often we wonder if he's interested at all. Quite often we wonder if he is remotely concerned with meeting the needs of humanity. Jesus seriously undercuts. He absolutely subverts the way that we, the, the kind of story we would expect him to tell by describing the God that we do have in mind as, to, as opposed to the God that we perhaps should have in mind. But, I mean, there are counters to this. I mean, you might say, uh, but, I, but in fact, I don't see God this way. And perhaps not. I mean, maybe, maybe not. I hope not. However, if, if, as opposed to it being either that you see God this way or you do not, if you were to place yourself on a continuum, and, and on the far left is God as the unjust judge, and on the far right is a God that is described in the Bible. We'll, we'll go over several verses. I, I wonder where you would fall on that continuum. Let's look at how God is depicted in the scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New. And you tell me what your conception of God is, is more like the uninterested, apathetic judge, the annoyed friend, or the God that is described um, in these passages, if we were to put this this picture of God on the far right side of the continuum. I'm going to give these verses without um, elaboration or commentary, just, just to frame some essential passages for you. Here's 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness whatsoever. If we say we have communion with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have communion with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purges us of all sin. Moving forward to chapter 2, My little children, I write these things so that you do not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the Anointed, the Righteous One. And he is an atonement for our sins, and not only for ours, but for those of the whole cosmos. And by this we know that we have known him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I have known him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is is not in him, but whoever should keep his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Here we have a God that is described as the light in whom there is no darkness whatsoever. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 forward. 
for God's vehemence against all the impiety and injustice of human beings, who by injustice suppress the truth, is revealed from heaven, because what is known of God is manifest among them, because God made it manifest to them. For from the creation of the cosmos his invisible things are clearly decried, understood from the things made. God is described as fully light. God is described as a God of justice and righteousness. Or what about Psalm 90, which I won't read in its entirety, but this is a prayer of Moses. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like new grass of the morning, and the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. This psalm serves as a contrast between God and God's nature and humanity and our shared nature. This is a God that is light. It is a God, we have a God pictured that is just. We have a God pictured that is immutable, that is transcendent. All of these are portraits of God. Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 4. God, having of old spoken to the fathers by the prophets in many places and in many ways, and the end of these days spoke to us in a son, whom he appointed heir to all things, and through whom he made the ages, who, being a radiance of his glory and an impress of his substance, and upholding all things by his utterance of power, took his seat at the right hand of the majesty in the places on high, once he had accomplished a purification of sins, becoming as far superior to the angels as the name he has inherited surpasses theirs in distinction. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, this day I have begotten you, and again I shall be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Or finally, um, I think one of the most amazing passages in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 28. And, and I would like you to keep in mind as a companion to Romans eight twenty-eight and forward, Genesis chapter 1, where we see that we carry as human beings the Imago Dei. So let's take a look at Romans 8, uh, verses 28 forward. And we know that for those loving God... He cooperates in all ways for good with those who called toward a purpose. Because those he knew in advance, he then marked out in advance as being in conformity to the image of his son, to, to, to the image of Christ, so that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those he marked out in advance, these he then called, those he called, these he then proved righteous, and those he proved righteous these he then glorified. What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, 
who is against us? He who did not even spare his own son, but rather delivered him over on behalf of all of us, how shall he not grace us with all things along with him? Who will make an accusation against God's chosen ones? God is the one who vindicates. Who is the one who condemns? We have in, in the earlier passages I read a picture of God again as light, as a, a, God, a picture of God as justice, a picture of God as immutable, a picture of God as transcendent, a picture of God as a home, as a dwelling place. And then as we moved into Hebrews chapter 1, we see God described as the radiance of Jesus Christ, God in flesh. And then as we look at Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 28 forward, with, with, with Genesis 1 in mind, we see a picture of God as, as someone who is, as one who is saving us, delivering us, and choosing us. Again, I have to, I have to underscore this, verse 32. How shall he not grace us with all things along with him, referring to Christ? How shall he not grace us with all things along with Christ? Who will make an accusation against God's chosen ones? This is a God that is abundant. This is, this is the sort of God who, who must be the focal point of your faith. This is what God is like. And I, I have to cycle back to this. People telling me the, the many conversations I've had over the years, people telling me they are on the edge of, of walking away from God. Atheism, agnosticism, something like that. As if my number one goal is to convince you to keep believing in the anemic, small, petty, passive God that you are currently trying to force yourself to love. And, and, and like, as if that was, is somehow a win for me. Or if that is somehow a victory for the kingdom of God. Point number one, the focal point of your faith must be what God is like. The, the chapter, chapters and verses I, I could have quoted to you are multitudinous, so many more than the few I just listed. If, if you think I'm interested in convincing you to believe in the God on the far left of this continuum, the God that is the unjust judge, you should disabuse yourself of that. Why are you trying to force yourself to believe in a God of that kind. But more interestingly, what is preventing you from loving the God of abundance that has been described in these passages, the God of justice, the God of light, the God of intimacy, the God of availability and connection that is described in these passages? This is why I think, you know, the Christian imagination goes so much further than even a careful bit of exegesis or a careful analysis of a, of a piece of Greek or a Greek phrase or whatever. We lack, we, we lack the imaginative discipline to begin to embrace a more biblical, more open, and, 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 and truly more 
fascinating picture of who God is and how God operates in the universe. The first point, uh, the focal point of your faith must be what God is like. The second point, the first obstacle to prayer is the most difficult obstacle to prayer. The first obstacle to prayer is the most difficult obstacle to prayer. God is, in fact, ready to meet us and love us as a friend, as a good judge. But most importantly, God is ready to meet us and know us as a father. It will always be the case that the most difficult obstacle to prayer is orienting the whole of your heart, the whole of your soul, the whole of your mind on who God truly is instead of how we've constructed him to be. This is why you should be willing to be surprised by God. God will upend your notions of him your whole life long, if you're lucky. Our whole lives will be an exercise in exploring at once what God isn't, what we thought God was, and embracing more and more who God actually is. And, and by the way, when I say our whole lives, I don't mean that this is, a, this is resolved after death. The, the, the beat that we'll take as we die and then continue the project of knowing and loving God more, of building the kingdom more, this, this upheaval, this, this process of God revealing more and more of God's self to us is continual. It's ongoing. It's, it is a form of worship. It is worship. Again, it will always be the case that the most difficult obstacle to prayer is orienting the whole of yourself on, on who God truly is instead of how we have constructed him to be. And this is, in many ways, the knowledge of God, what God is like. And, and, and by the way, on knowledge and experience, one brief note on this. I'm not terribly interested. So, so for some of you... Um, might, if, if, if you were to kind of put to language your, um, how God has revealed himself to you through your life, some of you might use more experiential language. This is, this is to say that you might, you might say that you began to understand God more and more through the experiences you've had as, as an individual. Others of you might say that you're, your relationship with God has evolved and grown and opened through, um, through knowledge. Um, this is to say through somehow understanding God. I'm, I just want to highlight that I'm not terribly interested in trying to prioritize one way of knowing God over the other. The idea that if, if you're exploring like the nature of God in a book, somehow that is superior or inferior to experiencing God through a friendship. So personally, I'm rather uninterested in, in the distinction between these when you are, re but I do believe that all of them, both of them are important. When you are reading a book from a hundred years ago, you are, you are engaging in the community of believers as you're listening, reading someone who has been trying to work out who God is. That is, that is an authentic engagement with God in community. Similarly, when you're enjoying a meal with friends or family, that is an authentic engagement with God in and through community. And in some ways, knowledge 
is a way of talking about the experience of, of traversing one's internal landscape anyway. So I, th- I think that the distinction is very unhelpful. It all seems to be knowledge. It all seems to be experience. But are we asking the question, is it, is it refining our view of who God is? This is, by the way, I think where so many reformed thinkers get it right. Many of you um, are, some of you find yourselves in that camp, right? Um, Others um, happily outside of it. But one thing that I think the reformers get so right is to begin with God, to begin with God, to begin with Jesus, to focus our attention on him. Uh, Here's a quote from Edwards. It is evident by both scripture and reason that God is infinitely, eternally, unchangeably, and independently glorious and happy, that he cannot be profited by or receive anything from the creature. And this is a, that, that is a picture of God that is clearly informed by the Bible. And it's one that is a robust and abundant picture of God. That, that God, a God that is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, glorious, and happy. That's, that's an encouraging portrait of God. So much hinges on this. Your compassion for others, it, so much hinges on a right-headed understanding of what God is like. And, and, and so much of your prayer life um, hinges, on, hinges on having the correct God in view. If we, if we agree that prayer without faith is nonsensical, then faith in the right God is, is essential. Your compassion for others, if born from nothing more than mere solidarity of the species, will run out. And I, I, I cannot emphasize that enough. The most committed among us, those among us who are most committed to, to justice, to doing good for our neighbor, if that commitment is born merely out of solidarity within, within our species, it will run out. It will become cumbersome enough that it will be discarded. You'll either exhaust yourself or, you, or you'll become bored of it. It is, it is our nature. However, your commitment to truth and goodness for yourself and your community can continue on and on if you are connected to Christ as the vine, an abundant God, a resource, a focal point. Because the more we focus on the true God, the more our hearts and minds will be filled with the image of God. We already carry the Imago Dei, but the more we will, we will, the more it will become second nature to us. And this is really where I think the parable actually becomes even, even more provocative and, 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 and quite insightful. This parable should force us to withhold our prayer choosing first to slow our minds, to slow our desires, to table our frustrations, and to begin 
with who God is. As a result of this focus in meditation, you will not, you will no longer have to choose to pray. And I think that's where the parable really strikes its most brilliant note. As a result of this focus in meditation, this attention on what God is like, you will not have to choose to pray. Rather, it will be a natural outworking of your focal point. Prayer in this way is an extension of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is an act of faith. In this way, prayer is an act of faith. It is an inevitable act of the Spirit of God within us. Point number one, the focal point of your faith must be what God is like. Point number two, the first obstacle to faith, excuse me, point number two, the first obstacle to prayer is the most difficult obstacle to prayer. Point three, God does not help. God does. Number three, God does not help. God does. I'd like to begin with, in in the tradition of the Via Negativa, this is the idea that by understanding what God is not like, we will better know who God truly is. This third point, God does not help, God does, is an extremely practical one concerning the way we pray. And again, I'll, I'll draw you back to the continuum that I referenced in the beginning of, of this talk. You might say that you don't, I, I don't think these things. I intellectually, I reject the things, the, these things. But in fact, it's, it's not merely about intellectual assent. It is about practice. So let me say a few things on what God is not. God is not a genie to be summoned. If your response is, well, I know that, think about as concretely as you can what your prayer experience actually looks like. Because some of us, this has been so ingrained in some of us that to unwind this approach to God is about far more than knowing it's not how we should approach God. It's going to take, uh, it's going to take quite a bit of time and energy. Prayer is a discipline. To, to no longer think about God this way, to no longer approach God this way. God is not a genie to be summoned. God is not a stingy and uninterested judge. But also, God is not an overqualified assistant, which is, which is something that, um, and this is not about critiquing the language that we use in prayer, but it's rather about thinking through how the language we use in our prayers reflects what we think God is like. I, I've, I've certainly done this. Um, haven't you? God help me. God help him. God help her. This kind of helpful, you know, golden retriever kind of version of a God, right? Who's going to do the best he can. You know, now that you've asked, God's going to provide a little help, and we'll see if it's enough. Probably it won't be. Maybe it will be. But God's going to help. God does not help. God does. You know, the, the objective of this point is not to make you, you know, forever insecure about using the word help in a prayer. But, but it's, it's, it's the idea that the things we say about God reflect something deeper, usually in our subconscious, about, like, the way we believe he works within the universe. This is why it's so essential that we begin with his attributes. Begin with what the Bible says about him. Begin with the person of Jesus, who is the fullness of God. Prayers in the vein of the Psalms, 
are necessarily filled with faith. They are speaking, they are us speaking what God has already spoken. This is where in so many ways the high church um, gets it right. You know, that it, it's... It is, of course, the case that a prayer that is spoken from the heart that is not scripted, that is not a feature of a liturgy, is, can be sincere, can be authentic, can be real, can reflect, can be filled with faith. But there is tremendous help that's given to you when the, when the prayer is already written for you in a psalm, when the prayer is already written for you in, in several lines of Romans or in the letter to the Hebrews or or in Isaiah, or wherever, we can speak these words filled with faith, knowing that we are already correctly apprehending the attributes of God. They're us speaking what God has already spoken. I mean, if you have ever been in a conversation, these exhausting conversations about the inerrancy or an infallibility of the Bible, um, I mean, of course, they can be productive, but you know exactly what I mean. Uh, They can be as exhausting as the people who are eager to to start them, right? But, But I'm very interested in the Bible as infallible. I'm interested in the Bible as the centerpiece of a living faith community. And you and one way to make it the centerpiece of a living faith community is is not merely to be willing to battle over, you know, if if this translation best reflects this piece of Greek from a um from an, a, a manuscript or something, but but a way to affirm the truthfulness of the Bible is to speak it, to pray it. And in this way we are stepping into dynamic Trinitarian love. Please understand, God does not help. God does. I've said it many times over the years. God encounters us. You want to talk about the truthfulness of the Bible? It allows, it doesn't allow, it is, the, it is a way by which God encounters us. Here's a quote uh, by, by Lorraine Bottner. Although the sovereignty of God is universal and absolute, it is not the sovereignty of blind power. It is coupled with infinite wisdom, holiness, and love. And this doctrine, when properly understood, is a most comforting and reassuring one. Who would not prefer to have his affairs in the hands of a God of infinite power, wisdom, holiness, and love, rather than to have them left to fate or chance? or irrevocable natural law or to short-sighted and perverted se- or to the short-sighted and perverted self those who reject god's sovereignty should consider what alternatives they have left god does not help god does god is the one who encounters us and i want to be clear i'm not diminishing and i i think it's sinful and wrong i'm not diminishing um the, the true splendor and beauty of what it is to be human. This is where so many followers of Christ and Christian movements have gone off the rails. In promoting the wisdom and holiness and love of God, somehow there's a demotion of the imago Dei that humanity carries in it. But of course, you can at once affirm that you are fully loved as a son or daughter of God and also affirm the unique and universal wisdom and holiness and love of God the Father. 
Uh, these, these two things are not at odds with one another. They're complementary. But the risk, there, there, are, there are multiple risks here, and they manifest themselves in the ways that we pray. One risk is to, is to reduce God, again, to this happy, useful, sometimes useful, more than competent assistant. And then another risk is to, f- frankly, face the overwhelming anxiety that comes from promoting yourself into the position of the sovereign God where you take on a, a kind of weight and burden for your well-being, for the well-being of your family, for the success uh, of your life that, that only God should carry. When you promote yourself into that sovereign position, it's not that God stops loving you, it's not that God loves you any less, but your capacity to receive the love of God through prayer is, 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 is damaged, is badly damaged because our hearts and minds are so full of anxiety. Well, how, what's the remedy for this? The remedy, again, is to focus on who God is, to focus on the attributes of God, and to allow prayer to be an overflow of that focus and that attention. This is something, again, that I have seen um, over the years. This is the, before, before Center. Um, I, I've, I've encountered this problem in people. I would say to someone... Um, something that's fundamentally biblical. You are, you are a daughter of God. You are a son of God. You are loved. The God of the universe loves you more than the best father loves his daughter, more than the best mother loves her son. That's how deeply God loves you. And, and I've seen this many times. People, it's as if they cannot receive it. Uh, they want to believe that it's true, but it's something that they cannot internalize. And here's, um, and I, it's taken me many years to kind of get my head around. There are many reasons probably that, that that happens, by the way, that that's hard to receive or that you have to like learn to receive that again and again and again. So there are many reasons for this. But I'm convinced now that one of the driving reasons that it is so difficult to fully accept um, to fully accept your position in the kingdom of God as a son or a daughter is because we begin by trying to understand that we are sons and daughters of God as opposed to, and it was an error perhaps that I've made as I've talked to people over the years, as opposed to first understanding who God is. Your sonship is useless if it's the sonship of an apathetic or unjust judge. But your sonship is a gift. If you are in fact the the son or the daughter of an all-powerful, at once all-powerful and fully loving and fully compassionate and endlessly forgiving God. Notice how those two things feel so different. If, if I can convince you that God views you as a daughter, but you view God as an anemic, weak, uninterested, capricious deity, then who cares about, about your role in the universe? 
But if we begin by understanding and meditating on, not moving past, not rushing to prayer, begin by meditating on the nature of God, then, then the, the brilliance of, of who you are in relation to that God begins to, begins to emerge. Here's a quote from um, Ogilvy on on, um, on on these matters. This is this is extracted from uh, the Reason for God. Peter had built his whole relationship with Jesus Christ on his assumed capacity to be adequate. That's why he took his denial of the Lord so hard. His strength, loyalty, and faithfulness were his self-generated assets of discipleship. The fallacy in Peter's mind was this. He believed his relationship was dependent on his consistency in producing the qualities he thought he had earned, he thought had earned him the Lord's approval. Many of us face the same problem. We protect, we project into the Lord our own measured standard of acceptance. Our whole understanding of him is based in a quid pro quo of bartered love. He will love us if we are good, moral, diligent. But we have turned the tables. We try to live so that he will love us rather than living because he has already loved us. That alone is valuable. But as I've thought about these lines, there's something that I think is even, even more interesting going on in the middle of this, in the middle of this quote. Our whole understanding of him is based in a quid pro quo of bartered love. He will love us if we are good, moral, and diligent. Why do you have to be good, moral, and diligent? Why did Peter have to be this, the, the disciple who, who measured his relationship with Jesus on his own adequacies? I think that the most interesting thing going on is that you will feel the need to be moral you will experience the burden and all of the anxieties associated with this to do good and be good, to be diligent. If your understanding of God is a feeble one, the more robust, it, 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 the more robust your portrait of God, the less, the less you have to do the more, the more robust your portrait of God, the more you see how your adequacies and inadequacies do not matter. The focal point of your faith must be what God is like, point one. Point two, the first obstacle to prayer is the most difficult obstacle to prayer. Point three, God does not help. God does, and... Point four, pray because you are in Jesus and see God as your father. Pray because you are in Jesus and see God as your father. John chapter 14, verse 13 forward says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. James chapter 4, verse 2 says this, you desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and you are unable to obtain. 
you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask in an evil fashion so that you might spend on your own pleasures. I mean, how do we reconcile these two passages as it pertains to prayer? Keeping the parable of the unjust judge in mind. I I alluded to this a few minutes ago. But, and in fact, I, I would say that this is to me the most, this actually encapsulates all that we've discussed so far. So if you hear one thing, I, I think I'd like it to be this. Deeper experiences of prayer come first, not from knowing you are a son or a daughter, but rather come first from knowing the identity of the parent. Deeper experiences of prayer come first, not from knowing you are a son or a daughter, but first from knowing the identity of the, of, of the parent. It's a, it's a gift to be a son or a daughter of God. But first, we have to begin to know God. Faith in God is the basis of prayer, and true faith is ultimately concerned with what God is like. I'll offer you this final poem by George Herbert. Um, the poem, interestingly, avoids verbs, and, and it attempts to give this picture, a word picture of prayer. So we'll close um, with a meditation on this, prayer one. Prayer, the church's banquet, angel's age, God's breath and man returning to his birth, the soul in paraphrase, heart in pilgrimage, the Christian plummet sounding heaven and earth, engine against the almighty, sinner's tower, reversed thunder, Christ's side piercing spear, the six days world transposing in an hour, a kind of tune which all things hear and fear. Softness and peace and joy and love and bliss, exalted manna, gladness of the best, heaven in ordinary, man well dressed. The Milky Way, the bird of paradise, church bells beyond the stars heard, the soul's blood, the land of spices, something understood. Blessing Center Church, we'll see you next week.